welcome to Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, I continue my discussion with Dr. Julia Azari from Marquette University about the Republican Party. On the last show, we talked about the history of the party, the strength of parties, the role of parties. Today, we're going to fast forward to the current situation, mostly talking about the Republican Party in terms of the nomination process and the current slate of candidates. Welcome back to Politics Considered. Julia, how are you? Great. How are you? I'm great. Well, the last time I talked to you, it was like 95 degrees in Florida, and now we've had a lot of rain, so it's like it's way down to 85, and I suspect it's in the 70s where you are. Yep. Still beautiful in Wisconsin. Okay, and I'm still jealous. So let's talk about what's going on now with Republicans and this primary. It's It seems more exciting than the Democratic primary. So you make a distinction between the MAGA movement and the Republican Party. And you wrote that they're not the party exactly. And they've taken over some local parties and driven classical conservatives out. So who is the party now? And can you name some of the people? people who control the party nationally, assuming they do? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the obvious answer to that is that there's this sort of group of MAGA Republicans now at the top, namely Ronna McDaniel, who is Mitt Romney's niece, but uh, no longer uses Romney in her name. Um, So, you know, you've had, and that's not unusual that the last president will have sort of installed their people in the national organization, but it's distinct in that they've been so sort of heavily overtly taking sides in these intra-party debates, especially because there's so many people who are trying to either trying to challenge Trump from the right or from a sort of mega perspective or trying to carve out a post-Trump or non-Trump alternative. So I think that it's really unclear who's really in charge of the Republican Party right now, especially as regards the nomination. It's been so interesting to me to read and hear on different podcasts, various Republican leaders. And of course, everyone has to say this, but they really have kind of said, you know, the the nomination is ultimately up to the voters. And unlike the Democrats, they don't have a kind of stopgap. They don't have superdelegates. It is a very voter-driven process. It's also a very winner-take-all process. You know, it's not exactly clear, I think, who's influential and who's running the Republican Party other than Trump. It is clear to me, though, that to the extent that MAGA is a, is a social movement, it's distinct from the Republican Party. It leaves out historical segments of the Republican Party and especially is like especially challenging for the kind of foreign policy establishment. MAGA as I think really distinctly opposed to intervention in or, you know, any U.S. involvement in the war in Ukraine has a very distinct attitude about U.S.'s role in the world that's very much at odds with the foreign policy establishment. And also to the degree that they're kind of more more libertarian or economic Republicans, you know, the MAGA movement is is not encompassing of those things. It's not a big tent movement. It's a movement with some very specific ideas about U.S. nationalism and about the identity of both the country and the party. Well, it's interesting that you brought up superdelegates and that the Democratic Party has them and the Republican Party doesn't. So does that mean that all that talk about a brokered convention on the Republican side was just nonsense? I mean, is it? they, They still have delegates. It's just that they're selected through primaries. I remember when Carter was running, 
And Kennedy, I mean, Ted, Senator Ted Kennedy really gave him, a, it went right down to the wire at the convention. It could have been brokered. So is that less likely to happen in the Republican convention? Well, so that was before the Democratic Party adopted superdelegates. But I don't know. I honestly, I don't know. I mean, neither party has, has had a, <laughs> a brokered convention in so long. It's not clear, I think, what scenario makes it most likely. The main difference, I think, between Democrats and Republicans on this front is not the superdelegates, but the way they select their pledged delegates, which is that Republicans have a number of states that are winner take all and Democrats have a more proportional system. So in that sense, Democrats are, I think, marginally more likely to end up with a brokered convention um, because of those thresholds. But for Republicans, you could also imagine a scenario in which the field is very divided and nobody has a, a majority going into the convention. That's a possibility. You can also imagine a scenario, we haven't really talked about this, you can imagine a scenario in which perhaps Trump has a majority or maybe has a kind of tenuous majority and is facing significant legal trouble. And I mean, he is facing. Well, I was going to say he's facing facing it now and that doesn't seem to have phased his, um, I think that will phase the elites and donors, well, big donors, but he has small donors. So maybe he's the one person in the world at least in the United States, who can sort of win while, you know, being indicted or whatever. Yeah, I think it really matters kind of how the primaries shake out, how the delegate picture shakes out. Because you can't imagine a scenario in which Trump has very diffuse kind of national support among Republican primary voters, but that the voters of the other candidates, I, we just don't know, right? There's some state level polling, but they're that they're actually concentrated in a couple of key states and somebody else wins a number of delegates and the and delegates walk into the convention pledged, but in a way that is hardly a consensus. And that's where I think Trump's legal jeopardy could come into play. That's where other factors could come into play. We just there's no roadmap. Like you said, Carter is really the last time that anyone went into the convention with there being any like real like real intra-party tension. 2016 was the next closest time. We don't have any sense of what this looks like in a modern media environment. Okay. Well, you talked about this tussle between traditional Republican Party policies, like, for example, opposing communism and Putin versus Tucker Carlson and Trump, you know, sort of supporting Putin, this tussle between the MAGA movement and the traditional party. How do you see this playing out in the next 10 or 20 years? It's a good question. I mean, as we get further from the Cold War, those types of considerations are going to be less significant. And you also do see kind of a little bit of a a horseshoe effect where you have people on kind of the far right and the far left asking questions that challenge the kind of consensus about America's role in the world that was forged during the Cold War. And like, I don't want to over romanticize anything about the Cold War, but it does strike me as, you know, the window of mainstream political opinions about our alliances and our foreign policy is going to get wider. I don't know how salient, like the other thing about foreign policy is these issues sort of fade in and out of salience and they're salient for very short windows of time. And that may also affect how it all plays out. I don't have a sense of how it might play out in a policy sense, but I think politically it's going to get more complicated. In terms of this push and pull between social movements and presidents walking this tightrope, how have other recent presidents, uh, and they don't even have to be recent, navigated this? 
the one that I really relied on to think about in the piece was Ronald Reagan and the kind of socially conservative evangelical movement, which in some ways is a precursor to the MAGA movement as opposed to something distinct. But Reagan's really interesting because he owes his nomination and election to this group of people. They're kind of what make make him stand out in a Republican field in, in 1980. When it comes for things to things like the March for Life, anti-abortion march in Washington, D.C., Reagan decides you know, he doesn't want to go and starts a precedent of Republican presidents calling in so to kind of speak to the activists and establish their support, but also to avoid being in a photo next to someone who has an extreme <laughs> sign. Yeah. Right? And I think that really exemplifies the kind of modern dilemma. And you also see this with to some degree with Democratic politicians and environmentalists or Black Lives Matter, where they want those votes. They want to express that support. They want to demonstrate the kind of broad sympathy with those values. But at the same time, they don't want to be standing next to some sign where, you know, there's a there's a message about defunding the police. They don't want to be photographed with somebody who's been arrested for eco-terrorism. That's the thing with movements. Movements have their role and their role is to to push back, to disrupt, to channel attitudes toward the status quo that may not be mainstream. That's what they do. But presidents, you know, have a much kind of broader set of political imperatives. That is just kind of an inherent tension. And what we kind of see with Trump is like he's not he sort of leans into that. He's not worried about bringing too much extremism into. The well, you, you talked about Reagan. It's interesting because I did a podcast on culture wars and how, you know, that was before the Internet. So Reagan, he really did cave to Paul Weyrich, Jerry Falwell, and the moral majority. You know, Reagan had signed one of the most permissive abortion laws in the country. And then he realized he needed these people to win. And so he became, you know, very anti-choice. But as you say, he didn't go and have a photo op with the March on, March for Life. So he was able to straddle it quite effective. But I think it was mostly it's because... It was before this 24-7 cable news and social media. Yeah, and that may be a big part of it is that now it may not really matter who you get photographed next to. It's just the whole information environment has changed. That is totally possible. But I think that it's it's really a distinct thing with Trump that he's just not, but like he's not concerned about being affiliated with some of these white nationalist groups. I, I don't think that's necessarily a feature of the Internet. I think that's just a feature of how his his political project has has emerged. Interesting. So you recently wrote for MSNBC that a lot of these assumptions related to electoral politics are in flux. I mean, even the media is in flux with Fox and their identity crisis and changing algorithms and the Republican Party and traditional assumptions are in doubt. I mean, they're struggling about their policies and what they support. And we talked about Trump's indictments, and that adds uncertainty. So can you elaborate on all of these different moving parts and what it might mean for and what it might mean specifically for the challengers that we're going to mm -hmm. talk about later? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there are clearly opportunities. People clearly see opportunities in the Trump indictment. I think one of the ironies of that is that the more Trump has legal trouble, the more people will say, hey, maybe he's vulnerable. I will join the race. And then you have even more Trump alternatives and an impossibility of coordinating across them, an unwillingness. 
To that point, do you agree with all of the pundits that if there were a one-to-one matchup between Trump and somebody viable like Tim Scott, or that they would have a much better shot than all of these 20 candidates or whatever? That's certainly, yeah. I mean, that's the sort of default position. The numbers are not super clear on that right now because Trump is so far ahead and he's been gaining, but for sure, that's the logical assumption. He's happy to have them have this um, Lord of the Flies doggy dog. I just heard this morning on NPR that he's not going to the debate on Iowa. And actually, I think he's smart about this because he said, they said, aren't you going to miss out? And he said, no, because I'm hoping one of the other challengers will take on DeSantis and then DeSantis will go down in the polls. (laughs) You know, if Trump isn't there then Chris Christie can go after DeSantis and take him down. In, in some ways, you know, on some days, I think Trump's not savvy. And then on other days, I think, well, he's very savvy. Yeah, I similarly have different views about that, depending on the thing. But I think that that's, I mean, I think that that's sort of natural front runner behavior is not to run. And again, we have this very unusual situation where Trump is a former president running for the nomination in this weird, crowded field. We just don't have a lot of analogs to that situation. Yeah, um, President Biden has talked about not going to debate. To yeah, it's debate. very unusual for an incumbent president to debate in the primary. Yeah, now there's this just fascinating thing playing out where they're deciding who can get on the debate stage. And I heard that they had to have a number of con- contributors, a number of mm-hmm. uh, certain number of contributors. So I heard... <laughs> that the person from North Dakota, who's very wealthy, was buying, was giving mm-hmm. gift cards, like, I don't know, $50 mm-hmm. gift cards to everybody who would give him a dollar. <laughs> so right. You know, that's just really interesting to me. So, I mean, they're all trying to get into the debate mm-hmm. and they need yeah. to get into the debate because their um, name recognition is pretty low. In, f- in fact, I was surprised to learn that DeSantis name recognition was lower than Chris Christie. Yeah. I mean, he's been on the national stage less long, so that's not super surprising. Yeah. I'm thinking back to other debates, too, where it has actually long been fairly standard for the front runner to not want to get into a debate. George W. Bush skipped some in 2000. I think H.W. in 88 didn't come to some. And it did. There's an interesting study in 88 that showed that it did help name recognition and sort of perceptions of viability for some of these can't like for um, maybe this was 96 it was like Steve Forbes. But these people, none of these people won the nomination. Like, this is the thing. It does seem to help with name recognition, but it doesn't get you over the hurdle of the person who's already got stronger name recognition and support. And Trump has such an advantage as a former president. I think you're right. I think it is strategic of him not to debate and to let people sort of tear each other apart. And they might improve their name recognition, but not enough to be dominant. It seems to me that in the debates that I can think about, Rather than one candidate, you know, helping themselves tremendously, they are more likely to take down someone. Like I remember when Senator Elizabeth Warren really took down Mayor Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was out after that. She took him down on his sexual, I don't know if it's sexual harassment, but anyway, his treatment mm-hmm. toward women. Mm-hmm. So I think Trump is thinking, we'll just let them duke it out. And maybe they. he really wants somebody to hurt DeSantis. He even said mm-hmm. that. And so if Chris Christie decides to take the gloves off, it'll be I may actually watch that debate. Yeah, they should be. They should be pretty interesting to watch for sure. (laughs) 
Right, because I think they're important to them at this point. All right, so that's a good segue. Let's talk about the Republican contenders. Politico has Trump and DeSantis as the favorites. Mm-hmm. They have Ambassador Nikki Haley, former Vice President Mike Pence, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott as contenders. And then the third category of long shots is everybody else, including uh, include well, Chris Christie's getting a lot of press. He is the darling of the media. I mean, he got an interview with Maureen Dowd, you know, and Maureen Dowd wrote that she wants him on the she wants him to be one-to-one matchup with Trump because it's good for ratings. So what do you think about the field? And I mean, do you agree with Politico and their their three categories? That, I mean, those seem intuitive. I do think if Maureen Dowd calls you for an interview as a Republican presidential candidate, I think you've arrived in 2008. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's why, sort do, of, why you know, do you say why do you say that? I mean, that seems like sort of where Christie is at is a Republican Party that is still sort of attentive to median voter concerns where this kind of, you know, segment of more traditional Republicans is still important. Christie seems, you know, I mean, in some ways, Christie is carrying the mantle of John McCain as someone who has uh, relationships he can point to with the other party, who's a little bit like independent and pugnacious and his political persona. And it's just like, like falling completely flat. Are you saying that most Republican primary voters don't read Maureen Dowd? I mean, I never miss a column. I'm not going on record with Maureen Dowd, but um, <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> I mean, I think those are probably broadly correct. Um, I think that there seems to be kind of some hostility toward Christie, some hostility toward Pence, to the extent that there's a substantial number of Republicans who think that Biden lost the 2020 election. I think that January 6th was a patriotic effort. Um, I don't know if that is necessarily a majority of Republicans that think those things, but it's a substantial number. And Pence really runs afoul of that. Christie runs afoul of that. Christie is positioning himself. And Christie is probably the most prominent articulator of a kind of non-Trump approach. You have Asa Hutchinson also, and he's just not well known. And Haley just also doesn't seem to be taking off. I mean, I think Haley is really trying to split that difference and that can be a recipe for really pleasing no one and that seems yeah she's having this identity crisis where she just can't get you know you have to have a clear message you know the, the candidate that i'm intrigued about is tim scott because i've heard a lot of um not only party elites but some of these people that very conservative. These candidates are all very conservative on the same page, except for maybe Chris Christie and Hutchinson. But uh, with Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, it seems like a lot of them really want him to be their fallback, even more than DeSantis, because I think DeSantis has overplayed this culture war nonsense. But and, and also, this sounds cynical, but they can say we're not racist. So that might help bring more people into the fold. So what do you think about Scott? Do you think he has a shot? I mean, it seems like at this point he might be the person who's best positioned to step in if Trump has some real problems. He's not polling particularly well, but he has, he's had a really good rollout. Um, he's clearly said things that Republican voters and these kind of party leaders want to hear. He's attractive. He's charismatic. And even though he has all this red meat, really right wing 
stuff. He's positive. People like positive candidates. So I don't know. I'm keeping an eye on him. Who who are you keeping an eye on other than him? <laughs> That's a good question. What's interesting to me is is whether there's any traction or kind of where the kind of Iowa religious conservative vote goes with regard to the kind of Trump DeSantis Pence choice. Right now, to me, I don't look at candidates. I look at coalitions. Right. I have a totally different philosophy of nomination watching. And so you sort of build from the ground up like, okay, who's going to vote for Scott? Can we talk about what those coalitions are in the Republican Party? You mentioned the Christian coalition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, religious conservatives, economic conservatives, the kind of the core Trump voter, which I think is somewhat different from these other two groups in the sense that the core Trump voter um, I'm thinking about people who maybe were recently brought into the Republican fold under Trump or or not super frequent voters under Trump, the, the non-college whites. These are the different groups. It's not as clearly delineated, I think, that, that, as it is in the Democratic Party. You still have a group of Northeastern Republicans, just as you still have Democratic primary voters in the South. Um, so thinking about New Hampshire and the role that New Hampshire is going to play. So these are economic conservatives, libertarians, people that maybe like, I mean, Trump did very well in New Hampshire, like very just more pugnacious, outspoken candidates. And you could also see this being the place where Christie tries to win. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. I'm also thinking about like where people in the party position themselves relative to Trump. So there's people who are trying to out Trump Trump. Like you said, DeSantis seems to have interpreted this in a very specific way that doesn't necessarily spell success. Yeah, I think he's made a miscalculation on that. But anyway, we'll see. Yeah, out-trumping Trump in a savvy way isn't necessarily doubling down on on some of these culture war issues. You have that, you have people who are kind of trying to be Trump light, and then you have people trying to be anti-Trump. Well, the New England elasticity is interesting to me. And New Hampshire voters, you know, they like to make up their own mind and be independent. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, you know, you mentioned overlap. I think there's overlap with evangelical voters being MAGA and being separate from MAGA. I think they'll vote for MAGA. And some of this MAGA thing has become social where people, as you said, who weren't political, they go to these rallies, they hang out and tailgate. I mean, it's very interesting to me. To your point, do you see um, this helping Trump where somebody like Pence could win Iowa? And again, Iowa is not dispositive necessarily for any Buttigieg won Iowa. So maybe Pence could win Iowa and then somebody else could win New Hampshire. I don't know who that would be, maybe Christie or who knows. And then that would actually help Trump, right? Because then it would be fragmented and Trump doesn't really need Iowa. I mean, well, I don't know. Can Trump win without winning those early primaries, do you think? Yeah, for sure. I think that can happen. I also think the the interesting thing about someone like Scott, as we're thinking about coalitions, is that he is actually strikes me as the person who isn't trying to position himself relative to Trump. He's actually running as himself. And that is that is an interesting sort of approach. He doesn't seem to be trying to run like Nikki Haley of like, I am Trump derived, but doing something different. Pence also or Christie and Hutchinson. I'm anti-Trump or DeSantis. I'm going to I'm going to out Trump Trump. He kind of seems to be doing something somewhat different. What state do you think, uh, <laughs> putting you on the spot, what state, early state, do you think Scott would have the most chance of winning? I don't know if South Carolina is an early state. I have no idea. It was in 2016. Okay. It was relatively early. It was before Super Tuesday. So, I mean, that's the obvious choice. I mean, evangelical Christians liked him, but, you know, mm-hmm. they might like Pence. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it's interesting that, you know, Pence was a former vice president. You think he'd be doing better, but I think he's just, you know, there's that whole issue with like hang Mike Pence and pissing off MAGA and not very, Mm. he's kind of odd in terms of not having charisma and things like that. One of these candidates needs to do something to break out. Do you agree with me that Tim Scott is somebody who is one of the most likely to do that? But I mean, I he, has, he doesn't have the negatives, right? That's that true. DeSantis has a lot of negatives. That It seems that way right now. Race has been really polarizing. And this it's not exactly clear what the path is like for a Black candidate for the Republican nomination. And you also heard this a bit with Haley being a woman of Indian descent. You know, this is just not, it's not clear. I don't know. I mean, yeah, Scott seems to have some some promise there, but we'll see. It's so it's it's so hard to know. I mean, you know this, how much sexism played a role with Clinton, how much race because of social desirability bias. Even though Tim Scott can appeal, Senator Scott can appeal to evangelical Christians. You know, we know that there are these white nationalists, Proud Boys and all of this, and they they make up a certain percentage of the Republican Party right now, sadly, and anti-Semites, and presumably they wouldn't vote for him. It's hard to quantify. So I have a fun question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible <laughs> that DeSantis wins the primary and then Trump just takes his toys and goes home and tells his followers to say to stay home and trash talks DeSantis? And I think, you know, I could see Trump calling DeSantis a communist because he, you know, his governmental takeover of Disney, which is a private company. So what do you think? Do you think that could happen? I mean, I think DeSantis winning the primary is unlikely. The simplest prediction is Trump win, wins. But I think it's possible that someone else could win or someone else. Again, I think there's a sort of marginal scenario that's possible. But I think it's possible Trump won't be the nominee and he'll do exactly as you said. He's certainly not going to go out and stump and be right. you know, and that's, reliable. And that's, and, right. And that's a factor on the margins, right? Yeah. He's not going to be a reliable team player. Yeah, I think that's I think that's totally possible. And I think that was that's a kind of underappreciated feature in the 2022 midterms is that Trump built his coalition around um, what we, we like to call low propensity voters. So people who are not college educated, lower income and not as likely to vote. And so a lot of these folks were inspired to vote maybe for the first time or they're infrequent voters voted for Trump. But then they're not super reliable to come vote in the midterm. And that's typically been the Democrats' problem, is that they rely on a lot of low propensity groups. Right. Kind of like young people on the Democratic side. Exactly. Yeah. But you could also see that playing out in the event of a different nominee, that Trump just doesn't inspire these other voters. And the Republican coalition has a structural advantage, as as we talked about in our, our previous conversation. They have a structural advantage in the Electoral College, but they do not have much of a numbers advantage. The people I keep an eye on are the evangelical Christians, because I think they are. I mean, I could be wrong. I think they're high propensity voters. They get organized through their churches and organizations. And I just have a sense that since the 70s, they had their eye on the Supreme Court. They achieved that. They overturned Roe v. Wade. And now they could say, I'm done. We don't need Trump anymore. And they do have alternatives that agree with them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very early. I think anything is possible. Um, I don't well, have any stronger predictions on that. Yeah, in case my listeners are wondering why the hell I'm talking about this and the election is in 
2024. Well, my understanding is that the first Republican debate is next month. It's pretty soon, yeah. yeah. And what, we might have more sense then as well um, about, I mean, this is the thing is, we're at the point where not a lot of people are paying attention. And when the debates start, the kind of primary electorate will start to to tune in. Um, and that's when we'll see if there are significant defections from the Trump coalition. That's when we'll see more elite endorsements. The money's a big deal. Yeah, I think the money is a deal. I think the endorsements are in some ways are a bigger deal where the thing with money is that it's not exactly zero sum and people can head to their bets and give to multiple campaigns. And the guy from North Dakota has a lot of money. Right. I mean, that's the thing is like money can buy you name recognition. No one is going to buy themselves enough name recognition to truly compete with Trump on that level. But, you know, but it can help if name recognition is a deficit and it can certainly help if you've already got some of the other other features. I think that's also where we start to see endorsements, which are more zero sum and where you've already had some interesting things um, in Iowa in terms of Trump has had some good gets, but so has DeSantis. I think that that's that's where I'll be watching and watching for the for the debates. But I think I'm not sure what kinds of scenarios are going to play out at this point. Well, I just want to talk briefly before we wrap up about third party candidates and the spoiler effect and first past the post and Duverge's laws and everything is working against them. But on the margins with 50 50, they can make a difference. And, you know, a reason why somebody would not vote for a third party candidate is that they feel that this election is existential. People felt like the election after 9-11 was existential. The election, I mean, every election feels ex- existential to people on both sides, the Supreme Court, a woman's right to bodily autonomy, you know. So, however, you know, there's a lot of buzz. There's the no label group. You know, there's just a lot of interest and people like the idea. I mean, I like the idea, but we're not a PR system. If we were a proportional representation system, we might be more democratic. But, you know, and and in terms of the spoiler effect, I think Pro probably helped Clinton get elected by taking votes from Bush. And I think Nader definitely probably played a role in um, Gore's loss. And there's even some discussion about Jill Stein helping Trump. So, how do you see this playing out? I mean, I think these are definitely possibilities. And there you do have these situations in which people have done analyses to suggest that Ralph Nader in, in 2000 and Jill Stein in 2016, even though these are not particularly impactful third party movements, that they might have been pivotal because of the way the Electoral College works, because you have a number of states that are so close and elections that are overall very close. And that seems fairly likely to be the the baseline assumption going into 2024, there's going to be a handful of states that'll be really close and any sort of, you know, somebody sneezes and that changes the result. And a third party candidate can definitely do that. Perot is the more uh, kind of easy to illustrate example of that. Um, although there's, you know, there's some disagreement about exactly who Perot pulled votes from. Perot got just under 20%. So yeah, and, and that's another example of diffuse support because he won quite a few votes nationally, but didn't win any states in the Electoral College. And that's likely, I think that's likely to be the sort of scenario with a, a no labels type of candidate is it's not going to be a regional candidacy. It's not going to win any Electoral College votes, but very well could could tilt the Electoral College vote in a handful of states that we have that are competitive are very competitive. I think that's the reality. 
the Democrats have a structural disadvantage in the Electoral College, and this is now being widely perceived in political circles as, if not a deliberate attempt to help Trump, then what something that will that will certainly help Trump, and that this the whole story of Trump is people against him not coordinating, and a third party candidacy is one more example of that. To your point about Perot and Nader. You know, Nader says, I did not help Bush. Well, we don't know. I mean, unless we knew how every we had truth right. and we could give to every voter and we knew. And it, what's interesting to me is a lot of assumptions about who a third party candidate would help. Like there was some discussion. Liz Cheney was flirting with the idea mm-hmm. of running if she could siphon votes from Trump. And then wow. Politics 538 did this analysis where they thought she would help Biden because a lot of those suburban voters in Atlanta and Philadelphia, they just could not stomach. They were Republicans, but they just couldn't vote. I mean, I know some of them. They just couldn't vote for Trump. They might be able to vote for Cheney. So, you know, it's really interesting. Anything that sort of challenges coordination, anything that challenges the coordination around a Trump alternative has tended to work to his advantage. And I don't think that's Trump specific, but I think that is the story of Trump being successful is other people not being very well coordinated. And the story alternately of Biden winning in 2020 is a careful building of this coalition that spanned from Bill Kristol to AOC and that brought in these disaffected Republicans because that's sort of what needs to happen to build the the level of majority that a Democrat needs to win the presidency. So I think coordination really is the, the bottom line as I see it. And that might explain why I think Democrat elites are more nervous about a third party candidate than Trump is. Yes. Yes. Even though the even though on the surface, it would seem like Democrats are actually much more unified behind Biden than Republicans are behind Trump. But it's it's the it's that structural disadvantage with the combination of the way that lack of coordination among alternatives has benefited Trump throughout the last seven or eight years that drives that suspicion. I think that suspicion is you know, is pretty well rooted in um, in evidence. I mean, to that point about Biden, I mean, I mean, Biden has extremely low favorability ratings and all this concern about his age. And I mean, I can't remember an incumbent who had such low numbers that went on to win. Can you? Mm-hmm. Clinton struggled with public opinion. Reagan struggled throughout with public opinion. I don't think it's that unusual. It's unusual to have a president who's this old. Everyone knew Biden was this old going in. I think some of the struggle has been that is has been the complexity of the coalition. I think some of the struggle has been the sort of COVID hangover of everyone feels really crappy about everything, frustration with inflation and things like that. I have this theory that people are just rating every candidate, every institution low, except for firefighters and military, they're mm-hmm. still high. <laughs> so, you know, Biden's are in the tank, but that doesn't, but I, but I don't know what Trump's are, but just because his are low doesn't mm-hmm. mean he would lose like it might have 30 years ago. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. Although again, I still think it's, it's useful to look back at where Reagan and Clinton were at at this point. I think by this point, Reagan probably was doing a little bit better, but certainly there's been a lot of back and forth on public opinion and on fortunes in the midterms and things like that. And then presidents have still gone on to reelection. So I think it's, it's a complicated picture. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up, um, Julia. 
Thank you so much for um, joining us today. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.